So this is a true story, Kylie. On Friday, last, by the time this is coming out, it'll probably be a few weeks, but I had day one of my period recently and I felt like I was dying. I just have a very hard, tough day one. And you know what? The thought really did. This is a true story. It really did cross my mind because we interviewed Christy from Ease recently. And I thought, oh my God, I really wish I had an Ease tool in my hand right now. Oh, <laughs> I think it would man. be so helpful. <laughs> I should have sent you mine. Oh, no, I need, I'm going to get my own. But um, It would have been perfect. Perfect. So for those of you who don't know, what this this is a really nifty little tool. You can use it for constipation and to help relieve menstrual cramps. And it's based on the science of acupressure. So putting pressure on specific points around the abdomen that help get the system going so it relieves constipation. It's really good for menstrual cramps. And it happens to be that we interviewed the founder of this magnificent device just recently and she's our new sponsor for our show so we really want you guys to know about this tool and we really hope that if you're suffering out there with something like constipation or menstrual cramps that you'll give it a try because it's a really cool thing and just fascinating (laughs) it's absolutely the coolest and you guys can use our code uh curious women or you can visit their website go with ease.com slash curious women i'm shook that was I know. wow i know i i can't believe all that i that i learned like i'm just my mind is, I need, I need a minute. Meg, <laughs> I read the book. I read the book and I still learned such an incredible amount oh after God. already being well-informed. Seriously. Oh my God. She and is those just, are the best. Oh, oh my God. We have a, a really, really great episode for you guys lined up. This is with Miss Lily Nichols and she is... Oh, Miss, Miss, Mrs. I, I did not ask her proper title. I just, Mrs? I mean, She's I, married. Mean, I mean, Ms. Ms. <laughs> Ms. Lily, what are you? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know about the proper title, but Lily Nichols is who we were talking to. <laughs> and she is truly, truly an expert in nutrition before, during, after pregnancy. And because as you all know, we've kind of been on a pregnancy prep sort of kick with our podcast episodes recently. And so today we are really nailing through the information on diet because that's something we've touched upon, but not done like a full deep dive into yet. And this was incredible. The thing that I think is the most valuable in this conversation is not only the actual information, but really the the ability to convey the information really in a straightforward, non-emotional way, mm-hmm. but also then kind of clarify it with real life application. In other yeah. words, this is or is not ideal. However, these are all of the different variables that real life actually throws at people. And mm-hmm. here's how you might think through each one of those. Because mm-hmm. like we said in the episode, Meg, research is all fine and dandy. You can read a paper that says X, Y, Z all day long, but when you actually are implementing it or 
combining that information with all the variables that life has to offer, it's not as straightforward. And I think that's a that's really a lot of what this conversation was around. I feel like it was really transparent and I feel like it was it gave a lot of different people ways to apply the information. And ultimately that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to bring to light the things that we don't know, we don't know. And this is not one of the times of your life where you really want to take any extra risks with not knowing, right? So the more you can arm yourself with to prepare. And and I think Lily nailed it. Guys, we have an arsenal. Speaking of things to prepare, this episode is an arsenal of preparation. So we hope you enjoy it. We know you'll love Lily. She is a magician of information. I just, I can't get over. Oh my gosh. The thing about the athletes, I just, you all will understand what we're talking about when you get through the episode, but so incredible. So incredible. Take a look at the show notes as well, because we have, we have tons of her resources in there for you. So as you're listening and having more questions that pop up, because I'm sure they will, we have we have go to references for you in the in the show notes. So please do that. Yeah. And please feel free to forward this episode on to those in your life who you know will find it the most beneficial. Any new moms, mm-hmm. any soon to be moms, new or otherwise, this information is powerful and mm-hmm. empowering. And yes. it really deserves to be spread. So please share with those who who need it and enjoy, enjoy Lily. So do you have anything fun that you're drinking today, Lily? Are you drinking anything? I'm fun? drinking tea. Oh, it's best. not or any spiked water. or anything fancy. Anything like it's just some tea. <laughs> yep. Just drinking tea. What about you nice. guys? Nice. What kind of tea are you drinking? I'm drinking Earl Grey. Oh, Ooh, I like Earl I Grey wish... once in a while. Oh, I wish I could. It just, it's like too for me. <laughs> I, don't know I know what, what you means. mean by that. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's what I like about it. Yeah, I do. I Maybe know what you mean. Right? But I I envy that. I wish I yeah. could get into You just got to put a little cream in it. Cuts the like. Yeah. Yeah. You got to do it English style. <laughs> yeah. And then you're good. <laughs> That's some good advice. I'm going to, I'll try that next time. <laughs> what are you drinking, Kylie? I have athletic greens today, which I don't always do, but no, I, we haven't I know. Had- the it's been a while. a while on the show. It's been a while. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing. I'm sure they're happy to be back, have their debut, yeah. <laughs> their reintroduction. <laughs> oh my God. What are you doing, Meg? What have you got going over there? Oh, I have coffee and I have, um, I just threw some protein powder in with what's this milk? It's like the flax milk with the protein added. I know what you're talking something. about. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. I don't love that milk. There's like a lot of stuff in it, but it was on sale this week. So I was like, all right. <laughs> That's what we did. Yep. Yeah. I get it. I That's get it. Yep. Guys, yeah. it's very early for Meg today. We don't <laughs> normally record this early for her. She has delighted us with her presence mm-hmm. much sooner than her brain usually chooses to start functioning. So that's the best way to describe it. Yep, I'm here, but <laughs> still bringing my brain, still waking up. So, <laughs> mm, guys, we are so excited. Meg and I already admitted to her that we had been fangirling since we got her on our schedule. Well, we have fangirling hard. <laughs> we have Lily Nichols with us. 
And Lily, if you don't mind, I'm going to actually just let you introduce yourself. We are going to be talking to you guys today about eating during pregnancy. And Lily, correct me if we're wrong, but I think that we're going to try to expand that a little bit to what can you be thinking about leading up to thinking about trying to conceive as well as postpartum and maybe breastfeeding if we could get into. We had a bunch of questions from some of our audience um, around those two topics. So we'll get into some of that stuff. But I would love for you to share with us who you are and why we're talking about this with you. Like, why are you the person that knows more about this than the average human being? We want to know. Yeah, sure thing. So, um, you know, my professional background is as a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and a diabetes educator. And I've, um, I've spent most of my career in the prenatal nutrition space. So even compared to most dietitians who might call themselves a prenatal dietitian or a prenatal nutritionist, I've just looked at this topic from a lot of different angles, just from the variety of work opportunities I've had in this arena. Um, So I've worked, of course, clinically, directly with women, both privately under an OBGYN for many years, um, often seeing women with high-risk pregnancies, especially gestational diabetes. I worked at the public policy level with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program. I do a lot involved in um, research and consulting on research projects, and then also training professionals on how to manage pregnancy nutrition, pregnancy complications with nutrition, um, as well as preconception and postpartum. So I've kind of seen it from a number of different angles. If you're only like stuck in the academia side of things, you have a certain perspective. If you're only stuck in the public policy thing, you have a certain perspective. Mm -hmm. If you only see one-on-one clients or even worse, don't see clients and you're just using your <laughs> one singular pregnancy experience to inform you. Um, that, you know, you, you have a certain perspective. Of course, I have my own two children too. So I've been through pregnancy, postpartum, breastfeeding, all of that myself twice. So that of mm-hmm. course helps as well. Um, but it's really from all of these different experiences that has informed my view on pregnancy and my maybe critical eye, you could say, Mm -hmm. at uh, analyzing, you know, our current guidelines for pregnancy and postpartum and where there's some room for improvement, to put it kindly. Um, And so most people know me from my two books, um, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and Real Food for Pregnancy, um, as you're holding up right now. And so you guys are watching on YouTube. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm often looking at, okay, here's what our guidelines are saying. This is the data that they were based on. This is how outdated they are. And here's some new data that's suggesting actually this is better. Actually, we can, we can do a better job of nourishing mom and baby for the best possible pregnancy outcomes, birth outcomes, um, infant brain development outcomes, um, Mm -hmm. all by focusing on, you know, food and lifestyle choices. So my goal really is to empower women and also their providers with the best information available. Um, take it or leave it, but uh, that's, that's you know, what I do. Yeah. So what I think I've, is really unique about you being an expert in this particular field is that, yes, the research is really super important, but implementing the research 
in real human beings who have feelings and lots and lots of variables in their actual life, and maybe other children, um, you know, those are two different viewpoints, mm-hmm. two different perspectives, and they require kind of like two wearing two different types of hats to be able to yeah. convey the information that is more than just well, the research suggests blah, 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 blah. And and I'm going to be speaking a lot to your Real Food and Pregnancy book uh, because what it offers is both sides of those viewpoints. So here's the information that you probably have heard. Here's why it's outdated and doesn't make a lick of sense. Here's what the new research, or I think what you do a really good job of saying and being clear about as well is, here's what we don't actually have enough information on. Yeah. Mm. There's a lot and of that. <laughs> for, for very, very understandable reasons, right? Yeah. It's it's not an easy thing to do <laughs> testing on pregnant women. <laughs> it's not mm. safe necessarily. So, yeah. um, and I do think that that is a particular detail that a lot of people in a lot of different categories don't actually talk about. Hey, we don't actually really know. We're doing our best to provide this information. It might be right. It might be wrong. But that transparency is very often, I find, not really talked about. And I appreciate uh, in this book where you highlight those pieces. Because I think that Mm -hmm. that full disclosure for women and their team, whoever that looks like, um, it can be very comforting. Okay, I'm not alone. And it might be okay that I decide to do something that feels right to me that maybe mainstream suggests otherwise. Right. Um, So what I want to start with Meg, if this feels okay to you, I am feeling really excited to talk about some of the top myths around foods that are not, I'm using quotes for those of you who can't see not safe to, Mm -hmm. to eat. That was maybe my favorite part of reading this book because Mm -hmm. I hear so many people, even those that are close to me, talking about what they can and can't eat, they blah, 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 when they're pregnant. And it almost feels, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but it almost feels like it's a thing, like they're part of a club of people who like now have to do this very special thing with their diet, right? We see this with dieting all of the time, right? This is not unique to pregnancy. But I think that it it really not only removes a lot of the joy of eating for people, mm. but also puts them in a position where they're missing out on a lot of potential nutrients. That's what I got from your book. So mm-hmm. I would love to hear what are the major myths that you see in your people the most often that you hear that are not correct? And mm-hmm. what's some of the newer research around some of those things? Sure. So I think we're talking mostly about um, foods you're told not to eat uh, during pregnancy. And that just in and of itself is a bit of a pet peeve of mine because we have a missed opportunity here. You know, there's a very uh, small window of time where you can impact your child's development, the various stages of like, even like the organ formation and the prevention of most major birth defects that happens within the first eight weeks of pregnancy. Okay. That's why after that point, like all the major organ systems are formed, the neural tube is closed and like, you know, and I, so I just want to point out most, not most, but some women don't even know they're pregnant at eight weeks. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Especially and, because uh, the way that we date pregnancies by last menstrual yeah. period, you're yeah. already like, Oh boy. Four weeks in by the time, 
you're you've got a positive pregnancy test. That is so wild. Right? Okay, so sorry, that gives continue. you like maybe a month. <laughs> like if you're actively trying to conceive yes, and like obsessively yes. checking to see that you're pregnant, right. mm-hmm. maybe a month worth of time where you can intervene on some of those major things, which actually circles back to your question about preconception <laughs> nutrition being so important. Um, incidentally, yes, it's very important. Um, but we have this opportunity to like optimize our baby's development, have a healthier, lower complication, more comfortable pregnancy mm. by our food and lifestyle choices. And instead of the focus being on, this is a time to eat as healthy as you can, because this can be an, an enjoyable experience. It's like you instead get this list of, oh, you're pregnant. Okay, now you need to fear all of these foods. And here's this long foods to avoid list. And you're not oh, given a whole lot of context as to why things are on that list and the relative risk of any complications or problems or food poisoning or whatever happening from having Mm. those foods. Um, So some of the major ones that tend to be on that list are eggs with runny yolks. Mm -hmm. So the major concern with most of the things that are on the list, there are some exceptions, is a food safety concern. We are worried that you are going to get food poisoning basically Mm-hmm. like from salmonella or listeria or E. coli or something else from contaminated or mishandled food. Mm-hmm. And you are indeed at a higher risk of those things in pregnancy compared to the average population because your immune mm. system is slightly different in pregnancy. Um, however, the relative risk of actually getting sick from most of the foods on the list is like close to nil. So mm. eggs with runny yolks is a good example of a salmonella risk. Egg, raw egg yolks, raw eggs can be a potential um, place that salmonella shows up. They're, they're commonly contaminated, or so they say. However, the chances an egg is contaminated with salmonella is anywhere from 1 in 12,000 to 1 in 30,000 eggs. Wow. And that risk is sevenfold lower if your eggs are from pasture-raised organic Chickens. Let me tell all the cookie, all the raw cookie dough I would have eaten as a child had I known that statistic. <laughs> all right. Fuck! I oh my god! Childhood. Fuck. It's a pretty, it's a pretty low risk. Okay, and if you're really concerned, and this all this food safety stuff gives you anxiety, is there any harm in eating your eggs until they're fully cooked all the way through, like? hard boiled eggs, fully cooked scrambled eggs. No, that's totally fine. But for the people who really only enjoy their eggs when the yolk is still kind of runny or jammy, and they are now avoiding eggs entirely, which is quite common. They'll just see eggs and they're like, oh, I can't eat eggs. Like they don't even think about the cooking method. They're just like, I can't eat any eggs anymore. Yeah, You're suddenly removing a very nutrient dense food Mm -hmm. from your diet. Um, Lots of different nutrients in eggs. However, the the number one one that I like to highlight is choline, which is a B vitamin-like compound that's really important for baby's brain development, for the function of your placenta, for the transfer of nutrients across your placenta, um, for liver health, for, I said brain, but baby's brain and eye development both Mm. um, are influenced by choline. And 94% of pregnant women are not even meeting the very low threshold recommended intake for choline. So now we've taken out the number one food source. Like literally half of the choline we eat comes from egg yolks. It is the most concentrated and most commonly consumed source of choline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Specifically from the yolk. From the yolk. It's in the yolk. Yeah. 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 
Um, there's other things that are in there. I mean, if you have women who are more restricted in their food choices, like they don't eat many animal foods, for example, mm-hmm. then eggs become an even more important source of nutrition for their protein, for their B12, for their zinc, for their DHA, for a variety of different nutrients that are, that are high in egg yolks. But really the major one that I'm most concerned about is the choline. So we need to get clearer messaging out there. Like a, if we're even going to talk about salmonella, then like promote eggs that are more cooked. Okay. Mm. Some Mm. of the guidelines do that better than others, but I think a lot of times in a provider like doctor setting, that's just not there. And that Mm -hmm. you see eggs and you don't look to the details. It's just like no eggs. So we can do a better job communicating. We could also just do a better job communicating the relative risks and then leave it up, leave it up to the woman. Right. So like 2% of foodborne illness outbreaks in the U S are associated with eggs, but 46% of them are associated with fruits and vegetables. And nobody right. tells you not to eat raw fruits and right. vegetables in pregnancy. So why Great are we singling point. out eggs and not fruits and vegetables? I mean, if you really want to get specific mm-hmm. about it, like everything, everything is yes. a potential food safety risk. Oh Most of the salmonella outbreaks are in things like almonds and, and <laughs> like fresh produce and uh, contaminated protein powder, things that have been contaminated during processing, which is totally yeah. out of your control. Or yeah. mishandling of things. I was just so going to say, we need to like, talk about food safety, you know, instead mm-hmm. of like blanket omitting foods oh, from, that's from the such diet. such a good point. So 46% of the foodborne illness outbreaks in the U.S. actually come from fruits and vegetables. Never is that message being said yeah. to, a, to anybody and specifically not to pregnant women. But less in the U.S., I hear from someone, because so I have like now a global audience. I hear from women in Italy, right. for example, that mm. eating salad is like frowned upon in pregnancy because it's a food wow. safety risk. So in different areas, there's different foods that are singled right. out. Or if you travel right. internationally, even outside of pregnancy, it's like, don't touch the salad if you're like traveling in Central America or, you know, like that's, uh, okay. that's, it's commonly recognized that it can become contaminated there. But in the Yikes. States... I mean, Some. we have a better track record than a lot of places. Like we have better sanitation and, and hygiene and refrigeration and, and that sort right. of stuff. Food transport that keeps things at safe temperatures. But still, like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a risk. So we yeah. should consider that one as well and not tell people not to eat fruits and vegetables, but just yeah. to be cautious about handling preparation and whatnot. Wow. I want to ask a quick question about this. Um, and then I want a couple more of the like really classic no-no foods. Mm-hmm. What happens, like talk briefly through if a woman did get salmonella or E. coli That's or listeria. That's my question too. I was thinking like, what, what would happen? What is the risk of that? Because I think most of us at some point in our life have quote, gotten something from yeah. our food, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those things that we may not have even known and we just kind of passed it through maybe a few days of discomfort. Some of us really do know. I think there's, <laughs> there's like right, a spectrum of that experience. For a woman who's pregnant, what, what are the concerns that are, that are different? Well, in the majority of the cases, it is simply a GI issue mm. that passes mm-hmm. in very, very rare instances, the infection can transfer to the baby, okay. or to the placenta, and then to mm-hmm. the baby, mm-hmm. um, and cause serious problems like mm. miscarriage and such. Okay. Um, 
the rates of that are really, really, really low mm-hmm. um, and are not always traced back to the woman had a uh, very obvious exposure to a contaminated item. Mm. So like, right. Cause it can where be did it come from? We don't like know. Yeah. Um, arguably there's a risk with everything though. Okay. That's mm-hmm. kind of the point that I want to get across is like, that's we're right. not going to, right. it's like driving a car, mm-hmm. driving a car statistically is far more risky than flying in an airplane. Yeah. Uh, however, we do things to try to reduce our risk of getting into accidents while we're driving the car. We keep our car maintained. We try to drive the speed limit. We wear our seatbelt. We drive a safe car that has, you know, airbags and other things. We pay attention when we're on the road and we don't text while we drive. We don't drink or drive while we're under the influence. Right. Um, There's all these things you do to kind of mitigate the risk. The risk is always there. Like you can Mm -hmm. get in your car and go driving and some crazy person crashes into you and like, you know, Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of the point of this, not to downplay that there can be serious consequences. There can. Yeah. The statistical chance that you will encounter that is very, very, very low. And there actually have been analyses looking at, what happens to the relative nutrient intake among women who very strictly avoid all of these Mm. unsafe foods. Like there was an Australian analysis I talk about in real food for pregnancy where they looked at women who strictly abided by the listeria high risk for contamination listeria items, which is mainly like soft cheese, deli meat, um, pate, like refrigerated meats and whatnot. And they actually found their nutrient intake was significantly lower for a lot of different micronutrient intakes, um, micronutrients, even though the relative risk of getting listeriosis in pregnancy is literally a fraction of a percent. Wow. There can always be a chance that it happens. Most commonly, the infection passes through mother and doesn't pass on to the baby. And if you keep Mm -hmm. your immune system, your gut health strong, you have a greater chance of getting through something with being totally fine. And I can actually attest to this. I got norovirus in my first pregnancy, not from food. I was taking care of my friend's toddler (gasps) and unknowingly it went through their daycare like the day before. And I'm like babysitting the toddler. And uh, I I didn't, I didn't know. Anyways, I got norovirus. My husband got norovirus and it it sucked I mean I threw up for like 24 hours and I knew the greatest risk for me was being uh dehydrated Dehydrated. so I just tried to stay hydrated with plenty of electrolytes and you know you make it through like you do with terrible (laughs) food poisoning or norovirus whatever in that instance that was like not food right Right. that was Mm -hmm. not food this was somebody else who was already sick yeah and everything was fine um, the, the greatest risk most of the time is dehydration from the throwing up or the right. fru- fluid loss from the other end. We'll just, right. um, <laughs> but most commonly it doesn't actually pass to the baby, even though yes, indeed it can. And the consequences can be serious. And yet yeah. that's kind of like a risk that's almost not within your control. Right. It's like, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Let's look at the only foods that you think are safe. Like what thing doesn't have a risk of becoming contaminated? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's right. Almost nothing. Almost nothing. So what are you going to live off of? Like 
boxed packaged irradiated food and then be like mm-hmm. nutrient deficient like yeah well I guess you could do that and maybe your risk benefit equation works out that way <laughs> but I think for a lot of people it's like actually no <laughs> I <Maybe>. like eggs <laughs> maybe I could just eat normal food <laughs> yeah okay wow. so the the message here is although perhaps the information around, quote, foods you shouldn't eat during pregnancy was coming from a safety position. When you really take a deeper look, it doesn't really add up because you're eliminating a lot of foods that are going to be extremely nutrient dense. You gave the eggs and the choline as a really great example of that. And ultimately, that list is just kind of like a spotlight of certain foods. It's every single food that has a potential risk, and coupled with the fact that if you did unfortunately get a foodborne illness, it's a very, 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 very small percentage that anything other than a discomfort in your GI for a few days is going to happen. Correct. This is the message, guys. This is the, the thing for me that this really helps is it takes away a lot of the fear. Mm-hmm. I think that yes. when people start making decisions about anything based off of fear, it's not a sound it's not a sound place to make a decision. Even if you'd end up making the same choice, I I think it puts people in an in a vulnerable place when they're already mm-hmm. arguably in a vulnerable place being pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. Oh okay. So so on the flip side of that coin, Lily, and this is such an annoyingly broad question, but I'm going to yeah. ask it anyway. <laughs> I, what are some of the top foods that if you had to say during pregnancy are somewhat non-negotiable because of how nutrient dense they are? What would, what would that list look like for people? Well, eggs are on the list. Right. <laughs> I figured as much. I already outlined. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to have some foods in here that people might not expect or might not like, but I'm going to say it anyways. Yeah. So what I do is simply yep. educating on which foods are the most nutrient dense and helping you figure out ways to fit them in, even if they're not necessarily your favorite foods. Yes. So um, eggs definitely on the list. If you go in terms of nutrient density, organ meats deserve a special mention on here, which Mm -hmm. most people don't like because most people, at least in Western countries, did not grow up eating because Mm -hmm. after the last two generations, this has been like a lost art. Mm -hmm. However, liver and other organ meats, like heart, for example, are extremely nutrient dense. Liver is arguably the most nutrient dense food on the planet. Maybe the one second to it might be like, oysters or clams, which also happen to be really, really nutrient dense and Mm -hmm. deserve a special mention too. Um, That's actually the richest dietary source of folate, by the way, liver. Everybody thinks liver is leafy greens and spinach and lettuce and whatever, which it is, Mm -hmm. but liver is far higher in folate than those foods. It's really high in vitamin A, which is actually a good thing. It's really high in B12. It's high in a lot of different minerals, including iron and zinc and selenium has basically all of your B vitamins and you need your B vitamins to do lots and lots of different things during pregnancy. 
Liver is also a very rich source of choline, arguably on par with eggs, but we just don't consume as much liver as we do eggs, but it's very Mm. concentrated in that. So there's a lot going on in liver. Um, You don't need it in massive quantities to reap the benefits. So even just a couple ounces a week um, is perfectly fine, perfectly safe, gives you a huge boost to your nutrient intake, no risk of overdoing the vitamin A if you're keeping it at levels like that. Um, it's like a, it's like a, a, it's almost like a multivitamin in a way. It's like, it's a vitamin boost to whatever you're eating. And so I have lots of tips and tricks on incorporating that if that's not something you grew up doing, because I didn't grow up eating much liver either. Um, (laughs) and if you don't have my book, I do have an article on my website on liver. If you just search liver at LilyNicholsRDN.com. You'll pull up an article that has all these different, very detailed tips and tricks about incorporating it and making it palatable and and whatnot. Awesome. We'll um, link that in the show in notes the show for you notes, all. Yeah, and yeah. and the link to your book for sure. But can, great. So yeah, yes. organ meats definitely. Um, even just meat itself, mm. highly nutrient dense, and you'll you'll recognize I'm calling out a lot of animal foods because ounce per ounce, they're far more nutrient dense than any of our plant foods and are richest in a lot of the nutrients we're typically not consuming enough of or are at risk for deficiency of, particularly in pregnancy. So iron, zinc, B12, vitamin B6. Everybody talks about B6 for avoiding nausea. It is something that can often reduce Mm -hmm. nausea. Our number one source of B6 is from meat and animal foods. Liver, of course, is also high in B6. Um, (laughs) There's also some specific amino acids in meat, like the protein quality is far higher in animal foods than it is in plant foods. So you can't compare like 10 grams of protein from beans to 10 grams of protein from steak. It's it's a different animal in terms of how your body processes it. Mm -hmm. But there's also a totally different amino acid makeup in meat, and it has specific amino acids that are often lacking from plant foods are just not high, not very high relative um, to to plant foods versus animal products. Mm. There's some of these amino acids or things that you actually have to get from your diet during pregnancy or or otherwise it creates a pretty much a, a, a deficiency situation. They call them conditionally essential amino acids. And one of the ones that I highlight quite a bit in Real Food for Pregnancy is glycine. And that's one that you need for your blood vessels to properly respond to the higher blood volume that it has to handle. It helps with your connective tissue adapting. It helps with baby's DNA. It helps with um, so many different processes in your body that we're literally just starting to recognize. Like the science on amino acids has exploded in the past 20 years. Mm. And none of our dietary guidelines reflect that yet. Shocking, Um, shocking. So meat, especially if it's on the bone or like a tough cut of meat that has a lot of connective tissue is going to be really high in glycine because these are high in collagen and the richest amino acid in collagen is glycine. So we can think even beyond like the typical micronutrients, vitamins and minerals, and also think about the type of protein, the quality of protein, the type of amino acids in it. And that really makes meat an an excellent thing to include in your diet. Mm -hmm. Um, there's plenty of other foods I could mention. We got our like, you know, vegetables right. and fruit. Um, yeah, seafood yeah. has a special role with providing certain omega-3 fatty acids. Arguably dairy products can be really healthy pending quality and whatever, but they can provide, fill in a lot of nutrient gaps in the diet. Mm. 
Um, again, particularly if the diet doesn't have a whole lot of other animal foods in there, mm. there's, you know, you can make the case for just about any whole food, but I tend to highlight the ones that are particularly the most concentrated in yeah. vitamins and minerals. That makes a lot of sense. And I actually, that brings uh, a question I Kylie had, so I hope you don't mind if I ask it, but I think it's a perfect time. <laughs> it's <laughs> that, perfect. Yeah. Like what would you say then to those who are strict vegetarians or non meat eating people and, but who want to still get the benefits of high nutrient foods, um, in their diet, what, what are your typical advice to them? Or, you know, I'm talking somebody who like, there's no workaround, like they are not okay with eating animal foods. Is there, what, how do you fully vegan? Uh, yeah, but we could, let's just say that to cover all our bases. <laughs> so I, it, it's a tricky topic, right? I, I've been yeah. vegetarian before. I have lots of loved ones who are vegetarian and vegan. Um, so, you know, I get all of the arguments for and against uh, consuming right. animal foods and have often lived by those same principles myself, mm-hmm. even if I don't agree with them nowadays, mm-hmm. but I respect that. Mm-hmm. Um, So it's really important that you take a look at the uh, micronutrients of concern, the ones that are most difficult to get from plant foods, Mm. so that you can make a plan on how you are going to boost your intake of those and or supplement your way out of a potential deficiency situation. Mm -hmm. The conventional guidelines highlight a handful of nutrients that can be difficult to get on a vegetarian diet and should be supplemented, um, particularly vegan diet, like vitamin B12, um, an algae-based DHA supplement, for example. Um, Those are all, of course, wise choices. I do think we need to expand our view on this because there's a lot of other nutrients beyond like the most commonly called out ones that you'd want to consider. So the one of the best insurance policies would be to take a high quality prenatal vitamin mm-hmm. would be to have your blood levels checked of mm. different nutrients. And this is hard because most conventional practitioners yeah. are not checking your micronutrient status yeah. beyond maybe your iron status, which yeah. often even then they're misinterpreting. So yeah. um, you have to really be proactive <laughs> about it outside of your functional medicine doctors. You're not yeah. getting a full micronutrient panel. No, like, no one's doing that. Right. Right. You should at the very least get your um, vitamin B12 levels checked Mm -hmm. and not just your levels, but also other markers of B12 deficiency Mm -hmm. like MMA and some others. Um, That would be probably one of the biggest ones of concern, given the effect on um, infant brain development on that one, if if there's not enough. Mm -hmm. And then you do want to consider some of the nutrients that might not be in a prenatal vitamin that you may need extra of. Like choline often isn't found in great amounts in prenatal vitamins Mm -hmm. simply because it's such a bulky nutrient and it's also pretty expensive for supplement manufacturers. So they're always trying to like make this choice of cost and feasibility. Like most people don't want to take an eight a day prenatal vitamin, even though arguably if you want a prenatal vitamin that hits all the marks for all the vitamins, all the minerals, which are very bulky, mm-hmm. and all the choline, which is very bulky, it's yes. going to be a lot of capsules. So if you don't have a prenatal that's giving you enough choline, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're going to want to take a separate supplement of that. And there are vegan options for it. It's high yeah. in sunflower lecithin, for example, mm-hmm. or you could do like a choline bitartrate. Okay. But that's a really important one to get. 
Um, yeah. There's a lot of things like this conversation could go on for a while, but I'll, sure. I'll point yeah. people to, there's actually a section at the end of chapter three of Real Food for Pregnancy on the challenges of a vegetarian diet mm. that goes um, nutrient by nutrient. Mm-hmm. I know more now than I did when I wrote the book, so I <laughs> probably should have added a few more nutrients to that list. But nonetheless, this touches on the biggest heavy hitters and then yeah. follows up with some logical conversation about what are the best ways to fill in these nutrient gaps. And yeah. for some of them and for some women, they do decide to just bend the rules, so to speak, just for the period of time of pregnancy, postpartum yeah. and breastfeeding to include some animal foods to hit the mm-hmm. marks on those things. And a big one that people will often bend the rules on would be eggs, dairy, mm-hmm. um, oysters, or other bivalve shellfish. They don't have a central nervous system, so they don't feel pain. So there actually are people that call themselves austro-vegans. They're oh. vegan, except they eat bivalve shellfish. That's and so that fun. actually is a really, it's an odd one, but it's actually a really nutritionally a uh, smart choice if you're going to make an exception on one thing because that yeah. fills in the gaps for B12, DHA, vitamin A, iron, zinc, copper, mm-hmm. selenium, iodine. Like it fills in a lot, lot of stuff. Um, wow. So, so cool. and then sometimes people add in like bone broth. Maybe they feel that, okay, mm-hmm. this is normally a part of the animal that gets thrown away. So I'm not necessarily like adding to... Um, you know, more animals dying in order for me to eat, but I can like make use of a part that would be thrown away. Sometimes they'll make an exception to that because that will fill in a lot of amino acid gaps without them actually eating like flesh because some people, it sounds gross when you say it that way, but it is what it is. It's legit. It is flesh. If you're eating animal flesh and and that, or that sounds repulsive to you, um, sometimes broth is less so. So there's a lot of different ways to work around it, Um, but you know, I I I give you some options. I think that's great. I I think I, for the most part, just wanted people to hear if being, if eating animal food is not an option for whatever reason that is, I wanted them to just know like they're, they might need a little bit more personalization. It might have to be more strategic, but I didn't want them to. To, walk away, to turn us off and be like, oh, I can't get pregnant now. I can't. <laughs> yeah, probably already turned off the interview, but I appreciate those. <laughs> no, 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 you're no. If you're no. still with us. Yeah. I also um, think at one point, all three of us wanted to do a shout out to Fullwell. Um, yeah. We had yeah. Ayla on a couple episodes ago. So if you missed that episode, head back a couple and listen to Ayla sharing even more details about prenatal vitamins and yes. why most of them are totally inadequate. Um, I'm she, a huge, God. And the choline. I remember when, when you were yeah. talking about the choline, Lily, I was like, Oh yeah. Ayla told us about that. It's also like a mm-hmm. big molecule. I think she was saying. So that's why she has yeah, her. Yeah. yeah. Ayla and anyway. I are, um, we, we co-founded the women's health nutrition Academy together. So we're that's both, so cool. we're very much in line. Um, you know, our, our nutrition views yeah. very much align. And yeah, her, her prenatal is really like an excellent, excellent choice. And that would be a really good one for mm-hmm. um, vegetarians or vegans to consider. Mm-hmm. Although you probably will need in addition, a supplemental algae-based DHA and possibly yeah. iron um, mm-hmm. if you happen to be low in iron, but it's a really, really good option. So Lily, one of the questions that we had from some of our listeners was around the time leading up to 
conceiving and the time following, so postpartum and breastfeeding. So I want to start with leading up to, and I want to get your um, your thoughts because I know I know that I have this thought in my head, and and I know that many others likely do as well. Meg mentioned this before. There are so many people who are past that eight week point before they even know that they are pregnant, and. Yeah. You know, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is, oh man, I had a, I had wine last week or, you know, but, but we don't really often think about, oh man, I wasn't on a prenatal and I, I'm just happened to be a, in a period of time where I haven't been eating that great for the last two months. I'm wondering if you can kind of paint a picture that, that sort of very fairly calls out what the risks of that are, but also if there's a way to kind of bring in um, some like compassion and like reasonability because it happens all of the time. Like what, how do we think about that very real situation in a way that um, is manageable? Yeah. I mean, you can think about it from a couple different ways. First of all, if you are, healthy enough to get pregnant, you probably have at least some nutrient reserves on board mm. and like sufficient hormone production That's a to great point. carry the pregnancy, right? If, if conditions are not ideal, your body doesn't allow you to even ovulate. Like ovulation is one of this, the first things your body shuts down mm. if nutrients are not sufficient, is this to say you can't optimize things? Um, not at all. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But if you can ovulate and get pregnant, you clearly had sufficient hormone production and a sufficient quality egg to conceive. A sufficient endometrium in which the embryo could implant itself. And for the first couple uh, up to about eight weeks or so of pregnancy. It's really towards the end of the the first trimester. Even that embryo is sustained via the endometrium. That's the lining Mm. of your uterus that builds up each month that you then shed via your menstrual cycle. Well, if you get pregnant, that endometrium gets even thicker, big and cushy. It grows these things called endometrial glands. And those actually provide the fuel Hmm. For So the, the baby isn't even oh. connected to your direct blood supply until the placenta has been fully formed, fully implants itself into the uterine wall and starts feeding the baby hmm. directly. Does that make sense? It's not that, that nothing that you eat makes any difference and like we should all just give up and do nothing and because uh, no. it still is going to affect your nutrient reserves. But arguably, this is why like if there is any chance of, you know, preconception prep, you can optimize all these things more, Mm -hmm. but it also gives you a little bit of like, it's going to be okay. Like if you happen to have a drink on the night that you conceive during the couple weeks after it's again, probably going to be okay. Like most (laughs) of the data on alcohol is with pretty excessive and consumption and binge drinking and every single day drinking, not like the occasional glass or two of wine. Um, Mm -hmm. You do like, life wants to move forward. Okay. And your body will try to sacrifice whatever it can from your own reserves to fuel the Mm. pregnancy and fuel 
the mm-hmm. embryo and fuel the baby's growth. Um, again, doesn't mean there's not room to optimize, but I think everyone needs to take like a deep breath because not only do you have those situations of like, eh, I wasn't eating perfectly or this is not the right time or I wasn't taking a prenatal or I had a glass of wine or I ate the sushi or which we didn't even talk about yet. That's fine. Don't worry. I want um, to. <laughs> it's like you also, after that stage, often enter the nausea and food aversion stage Mm. in the first trimester, where even if you had best laid plans to be eating a salmon salad every day for lunch, you might be completely averse to fish for a while, or you might not even be able to look at a vegetable, or you might be throwing up a lot and all you can keep Mm. down is like, you know, buttered sourdough toast and like Mm. boxed mac and cheese, you know, like first trimester is very often like a survival mode kind of a situation. (laughs) So whether your symptoms force you there already, or you feel like you've had some slip ups, um, don't fret. There's still two thirds of the pregnancy to uh, make it through. And, uh, and if things don't work out and you happen to lose the pregnancy, that's also extremely common. And like 99.9999999% it's a chromosomal abnormality that you didn't have control over anyways. Mm. Um, so just like, let's like level set and calm down. Be okay with things. Like, <laughs> We've got a lot that's listeners. not within your control. It's, it's going to be okay. That is exactly the answer that I was looking for. That was it. Without knowing, I really, because there, there is this constant balance between acknowledging the absolute truth behind everything that we're saying. The whole reason that this book exists is because these things are important. But at the same time, not only do people not always know that they're pregnant, but I didn't even think about, of course, a lot of people can't eat <laughs> during that first trimester. Mm-hmm. Yep. Quite, wow. quite a bit. Which, if we're going to point to the optimal side of things and have the flip side of the conversation, because it's not complete without that. That's right. Your, both your eggs, well, if you go all the way back, it's probably like three to eight months preconception that you can influence Mm -hmm. the egg quality. Okay. Mm -hmm. You absolutely do influence how healthy an egg is, how good it is at producing its own energy, its mitochondrial function chances of DNA fragmentation, other things. These are things that can go back three to eight months prior to conception. And in your partner, because they contribute half the DNA, that goes back about 72 to 78 days, depends on what you're reading about formation of sperm. So several months for them as well. Mm. And yeah, sometimes it's not even you. It's like, it's his fault. That's something by the way. Um, But if there is a like conscious period of trying to optimize your nutrient reserves, trying to get enough sleep, trying to eat in a way that gives you balanced blood sugar, which is often eating more protein, which many women are not eating enough of and eating less of the sugary stuff, mm-hmm. um, moving your body, getting sunlight, being outside, all these things play a big role in our hormonal balance, our egg quality and, and all that stuff. So from an optimizing perspective, like all those things can take place. And yet like 50% of pregnancies in the U S are unplanned (laughs) and most of them end in a, in a live birth. So, you know, Mm -hmm. there, there can be this period of planning. And of course I'm going to advocate for that. And then also there is still plenty of time to be implementing positive lifestyle changes after you have conceived after the nausea and food aversion phase Mm. has calmed down a little. Yeah. 
Would it be safe to say that the the recommendations that you outlined in this book for eating while you're pregnant are really not that far off from how we should just be nourishing ourselves in general? That is accurate. Yes. I yeah. was thinking that too. When I was, that before we, before we started recording, I was like, you know, I should just have my acne clients read her book because I'm sure it would give like, it's kind of the same thing. You need like a really yeah. high nutrient diet to, yeah, for, anyway. yeah, for everybody, for everybody. different reasons. Yes. Yes. So you exactly. could write a similar book with different citations. It would take yeah. a really long time, but like mm-hmm. all the data I'm citing is pregnancy yeah. related, mm-hmm. but uh, you could cite different things for, mm-hmm. you know, a fertility book or a book on postpartum recovery or mm-hmm. a book on joint health, <laughs> yeah. heart health. Yeah. Um, a lot of these things do in fact overlap. It's just a normal human diet mm-hmm. based on mm-hmm. regular food before we process the heck out of everything. I almost feel like that would be a good time to invite um, those of my fellow uh, people in the Dink Club, for those of you who don't remember me saying this, dual income, no kids, with no plans for kids, which would be me. But like this, these, I think it's a good time to invite them into the conversation that they can also still learn plenty from this conversation, from your book, because as you mentioned, it is very similar, if not exactly the same as what we should just be doing to nourish ourselves. Anyway, yeah, for just, other just reasons. for um, hormonal health and yeah. easier menstrual cycles. Yep. And yeah, there's actually a book um, you could have her on, Lisa, The Fifth Vital Sign. Her book echoes a lot of the same nutrition stuff, but she really argues for the importance of, as many people in the fertility awareness space do, the importance of, you know, a, a normal ovulating, ovulatory menstrual cycle that's fairly yeah. regular every month and pain-free and not super horrible. Um, And it's a lot of the same principles actually as what's in real food for pregnancy. It's unprocessed Mm -hmm. foods. You need micronutrients for all of these things in your body to function. You need sufficient amounts of protein and fat for your hormonal balance. You need Mm -hmm. blood sugar balance for just about everything. Um, And arguably we could go a long way just like talking about Eating foods that uh, just displace what most Americans are eating, like 58% (laughs) of the calories consumed on an American diet are ultra processed foods. Those are things made with typically a lot of ingredients, but the major ingredients are like some kind of sugar or high fructose corn syrup, Mm -hmm. a refined starch like white flour or corn starch or something, and then a slew of additives, your flavors, colorings chemical, whatever it is. Um, And that makes up the majority of the American diet. Can you imagine? Like, even if we displace like 10% of that stuff by encouraging people to have a more satiating high protein breakfast in the morning, Mm -hmm. you would have vastly, we'd probably save billions in healthcare costs in the country. (laughs) It's disgusting to think about it when you say it that way. Like how much... That's a different, never mind. I'm not going down the rabbit hole. That's a different conversation. Yeah, different yeah. episode. <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you briefly, um, just as a quick side note, before we go to breastfeeding and postpartum, which I have a feeling you're going to say is not really that different, but 
um, we'll, we'll let you answer fully. Yeah. Do you, um, I know in your book, you talked about alcohol a little bit and basically kind of said most of, just like you mentioned, most of the research is on daily drinking or binge drinking, which we can see things like fetal alcohol syndrome. And obviously those are not okay. What is, if you have one, an opinion or a recommendation or maybe experience that you've seen in your client's about having a glass of wine at dinner because I have known pregnant women where they'll order a margarita at dinner. And even knowing what I know, I think to myself, holy shit, what are you doing? Who is serving this to you? You're clearly pregnant. Like it's not, I mean, you, you're clearly with child. And, and I don't, clearly with child. <laughs> clearly with child. <laughs> I don't like knowing that I had that thought go through my head. It felt really unnecessarily and unfairly judgmental. Um, so what, what should we keep in mind around that? What do we know? What don't we know? Well, so I I would probably have the same thought come to mind. Alcohol is a tricky one, and I I try to give it justice in that section of Chapter 4, but the countries where small amounts of alcohol consumption are not frowned upon in pregnancy, they're not serving hard alcohol. It's like a fine wine or a beer, Mm-hmm. Um, which has far lower concentrations of alcohol. It's a lot easier to control your serving size too. <laughs> so a lot of the research on alcohol, it's like it's dose dependent, um, the potential harms. And yet they still can't identify a clear like, yes, this very small amount is definitely safe. They just tend to see the absence of harmful effects, if that makes sense. It does. When it's pretty low, like, a glass of wine a week with dinner. Um, what I would say, I think one of the considerations that you, that you want to have with it, I, I think on one hand, it's like, okay, I want to like calm people down. If they had a sip of their husband's beer or something, it's not the end of the world. Baby's going to be fine. Right. <laughs> um, but at the same time, there's really no logical argument to justify you should drink alcohol in pregnancy. Right. <laughs> right. right? The, so I think it's one of those things where um, typically the most like sensitive period for major negative things to happen would be earlier in pregnancy, mm-hmm. first of all. Second of all, I'd be thinking about the type of alcohol. I don't think that hard alcohol has any place in pregnancy personally, but mm-hmm. a small glass of wine, a small amount of beer, if you're feeling up to it, fine. Have it after a meal, particularly one that's high protein, so that you know, you know how it is. If you have alcohol in an empty stomach, you get drunk. Mm-hmm. So it's the acetyl alcohol, acetyl aldehyde, and like the other um, toxic byproducts of alcohol metabolism that are the things that are most harmful, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. little sips where you're not getting a buzz, I wouldn't be worried about. But if you're feeling buzz, you probably went too far, and you probably don't want to do that again, right? So like <laughs> knowing your limits. Yeah. And then the yeah. final point I want to make is that alcohol, we all metabolize alcohol differently. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so hard to find a level of alcohol that's right. always safe or always unsafe for each woman. Mm-hmm. Um, But one thing that alcohol does is it puts a major stress on your liver to detoxify it. I mean, it is ultimately a toxin and there's a lot of nutrients that your body has to use up to detoxify 
the alcohol to create more glutathione to detoxify it, to run all your phase one and phase two detoxification um, systems in your body. And so technically, like you're pulling from your nutrient intake and nutrient reserves that could be going to important functions for helping baby grow. And instead, you're like diverting those to alcohol detoxification. So while I want to be like, don't freak out if you have a sip of something or like you're at the toward the very end of pregnancy and God, you just want like a tiny bit of beer or a tiny you bit of wine. You probably need like, it at Again, that point. you're probably <laughs> fine regularly consuming it in large amounts. And especially if it's like really um, high proof, you know, hard alcohol. Mm-hmm. No, like I can't condone that, obviously. Right, <laughs> so. right. Very reasonable. Okay, that was really well-rounded because there are both of those sides where – you know, the people who don't know, or they just want to have a sip. But I think what I'm hearing you say is like, it's not really offering any nutritional value, although perhaps it offers you an emotional or a mental or like a social value. Um, And at that point, you need to decide, I guess, really day to day, what is the priority for you that day? Like what? Yeah. And don't don't get tipsy. Might be <laughs> Don't get white girl yeah. wasted while you're pregnant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That Definitely was really not, helpful. Not encouraged. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I I appreciate that insight. All right. And then lastly, Meg, do you mind? I just have had these questions on my no, head for so long. No, do you mind if I just I'm, keep yeah, yeah. We do, I, okay. uh, I think we probably have to wrap it up, though. We want to be very <laughs> cautious of Lily's time. <laughs> yep. I think this is going to be an easy one to answer. Good. Breastfeeding and postpartum. Is there anything specific that should be thought of or particularly mindful of to help keep breast milk supply or to help support um, the woman's body postpartum? So what a lot of people don't realize about postpartum and breastfeeding is that it is the most nutritionally expensive time in your life as a woman. Mm. So never will your calorie, protein, micronutrient needs ever be this high again. Mm. Even more so than pregnancy. Even more so than pregnancy. Yes, even more so than pregnancy. For all of those, by the way. (laughs) So you have to think, you have now nine months of pregnancy behind you where you pulled from your nutrient reserves. Hopefully you were trying to make up for any uh, severe depletion by eating well during your pregnancy. But Mm -hmm. most of the time, you're not going to end pregnancy more nutrient replete than you started pregnancy. That's for sure. Mm. Now you've gone through birth, which is either a very energetically taxing process, you know, a vaginal birth with a very long labor. It's like running a marathon. Okay. It's, it's long labor intensive. I guess you could say it burns a lot of energy mm-hmm. or maybe you had a C-section, which is major abdominal surgery and also mm-hmm. has a period of recovery. Or yep. maybe you got really lucky and had both a long labor and an emergency C-section. So you're like <laughs> depleted oh. from a marathon. Plus there's major abdominal surgery at the end. You need a lot to replete from that. So especially the first couple weeks, you need a lot of food, a lot of rest, a lot of protein. 
the same types of foods that are good for you in pregnancy are good for you in postpartum. You need more of them and you will probably know because you will be ravenously hungry. <laughs> then on top of all of this, you now have a baby to care for 24 seven, your sleep is disrupted and your body now starts producing breast milk, which has its own hormonal craziness, but also pulls from your energy reserves even more. I mean, you burn 500 calories a day, just producing breast milk. So that's uh, just like producing it, just producing breast milk. Yes. It uses a lot of energy. Wow. Unfortunately, we're in this situation in most Western cultures where there's not a lot of emphasis on postpartum recovery and support for new moms. And so a lot of women end up severely under eating and very depleted. And we have a wide range of consequences as a result of this. And this is like a societal problem because you mm. literally can't be up on your feet and cooking for yourself in early postpartum, nor should you be. Mm. And all of our other cultures, there's like an older female relative who's like living with you or you're living with her and they're doing everything for you. They're cooking for you, they're serving you food, they're cleaning your house, they're doing your laundry, and all you do is rest and feed the baby and recover and eat. Whoa. Um, Which we need to do more of uh, in this culture. But... um, that's the major, that's the major difference. Like it's more of everything. And they actually even did a study, um, came out fairly recently at three to six months postpartum among breastfeeding women. And they needed, first of all, their protein needs were higher than pregnancy in the third trimester, but they were even higher than most female athletes. (gasps) Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. So So you need a ton of protein a shit ton of protein (laughs) so much protein if you are hungry all the time which most likely you are and you're famished and you're just like going to the pantry to get whatever you can eat because you're so low energy you are missing out on protein i can guarantee you you're missing out on protein because it's so much protein that most women are not eating that much especially if you're under the guise that okay i'm not pregnant anymore and I need to be trying to eat less so I can lose the baby weight, which is a really uh, common feeling that a lot of women have. Mm-hmm. And ironically, the less you eat, the more your body is going to like right. hold on to that weight, by the way. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So you need that protein to like keep your metabolism going, to keep the milk production going, to keep your micronutrient intake up because our protein-rich foods are usually the highest in our vitamins and minerals. You need it for your blood sugar stability. Everything will be better if you just eat enough protein. And I can attest to it because I had my contrast of my first and second postpartums where even though I was trying in the first, I just didn't know how much Mm. I possibly needed. And I didn't have the support there to Mm. have that food like made for me. Second time around, I was all about postpartum milk prep and inviting help. And yes, and eating tons of protein is a night and day experience. So wow. That business is... idea for anyone who's looking to be an entrepreneur, maybe like a postpartum support, like house support. <laughs> just just like uh, just like a lactation nurse who comes. Post, yeah. Postpartum doulas. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, well, I thought I was over here coming up with a brand new idea. I have no, <laughs> Yeah, more of yeah. them. Okay. Or if you know somebody, if you have a friend who's pregnant and having a baby, Offer to set up a meal train for her 
I have an oh. article all about like postpartum, real food postpartum recovery meals on my website that <gasps> Ooh, goes we'll through some different too. options for supporting and planning for postpartum recovery and links out to a bunch of recipes. Wow. But that is a godsend. If somebody can wow. set up a meal train and then mm-hmm. people in your friend group, community group, faith group, whatever, can sign up to bring you meals. Wow. What a great that idea. saves the day. Believe me, it Whoa. saves the day. Even if the meals are not your favorite thing, it still saves the day. Wow. Plus, if you're ravenous, I imagine you'll just eat whatever is in front of you, I guess. Pretty much. Pretty not much, that yeah. your friend shouldn't try to like cook a good meal for you, but I mean, <laughs> not all of us. Are it, I mean, <laughs> depending on how like health conscious your friend group right. is, it, right. it might be a mixed right. bag. But at the right. same time, even if you're going to like add to it, at least you're not yes. starting completely from scratch for a meal. Aww. And it also can provide food for other people in your household too. So it can yeah. still be helpful. Like, I don't like this. Like, give it to your partner or something. Right. (laughs) Right. Wow. That's such a great idea. Oh my gosh. Lily, we have taken too much of your time. I would continue to talk to you for the next hour all day and it would not be a stretch of my time. So (laughs) thank you for being here. Um, I think that this particular conversation is one that people have a lot of un- fairly placed emotion around. And so when the ideas of what you're talking about are often presented, there's a lot of emotional pushback to it. And ultimately it ends up really being to the detriment of getting more nutrient dense foods or simply maybe just being able to enjoy the process a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really glad to have an expert in this field really sharing kind of neutral facts. It's one yeah. of the things that we really love being able to bring to our to our show for our audience. So thank you for doing that in an yeah. equally transparent and compassionate way. I think those yeah. two things can be hard to, to marry. And especially during an already very emotional period of time, not only for the woman, but you know, her support system as well, who just wants her to be safe. Um, And so I think I've heard a lot of pushback from like the fathers to be around these topics as well, just out of fear and wanting their, their, the mothers. You want the best. So you want to, you know, eat on Mm -hmm. the safe side and yeah. 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 Do you have anything that you want to promote that you want to let our listeners know about? Well, um, certainly my books. I mean, most of the topics we covered today are things I go into more detail in Real Food for Pregnancy. So you Mm -hmm. can find that um, on my site, Lily Nichols RDN, and click on the books tab. Of course, it's on Amazon too. I do have a bookshop for people who are in the US. Um, If you order Real Food for Pregnancy paperback from my bookshop, you can get a free copy of my e-cookbook with it, which has 30 additional recipes and they're all nicely photographed. And it's like, you know, it's a, it's a cute little perk as a thank you for people who buy direct, Um, you know, authors don't get a ton for their work, but if you buy direct, I get paid a little more fairly. So yeah, that's a, that's an absolutely 100%. You only ship paperback to the U S though. I can't deal with international, uh, right. Shipping and returns myself. I leave that to Amazon and the other people. Um, yeah. But for U.S. dwelling people, that's an option. Okay. Um, on my site, also lilynicholsrdn.com, there's my blog. There's like 250 plus articles, um, many of which we've talked about today. So there's an article on vegetarian diets. There's an article on 
shellfish, an article on liver, an article on postpartum recovery meals. There's like a whole bunch of stuff up there um, where I either like expand upon topics that I cover in, in the book or maybe add additional context that maybe if I could go back, I would add it into the book, but it's there. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's lots of info on, on my website that you can pull from. And then as far as uh, social media wise, I'm usually most active on Instagram. So I post, you know, typical meals I'm eating, research briefs, just, you know, interesting factoids about prenatal or postpartum nutrition that you might not know about. So that's all on Instagram and that um, my tag is the same as my website. So it's, Lily Nichols, RDN. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much. We'll make sure all that stuff ends up in the show notes so our listeners can follow you and buy your book from your bookshop. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lily. Thank you so much. We'll talk with you soon. Thank you so much for listening to Curious Women. If you love our show, you can support us by leaving us a five-star rating and review. And if you know someone else who would really love our show, please share it with them too.